Hello, I'm Jolyon Rubenstein, professional idiot, podcast host and allegedly a satirist. And I'm investigative journalist for hire, James Ball. This is a podcast that boldly goes where most people know better than to tread. Each week, we take one specific conspiracy theory and a fantastic guest and we dissect it. What's the conspiracy? Who's behind it? What's the evidence for it? And why do people believe in it? And then we settle, once and for all, whether it's fact or fake news. So whether you want answers on 9-11, which we still haven't given you, or the Loch Ness Monster on Benghazi, or whether Avril Lavigne died and was replaced by her body double, Melissa, your bill is late, you're in the right place. Now this week on the podcast, we're joined by former spin doctor, I guess, for Ed Miliband, Times radio host and bloody lovely person, Aisha Hazarika. Now, I've known Aisha for a little while. She's well known in Westminster for being one of the sharpest, you know, uh, buttons. A buttons sharp? I don't know. I mean, that's a conspiracy in itself. But today we're talking about something that really has become a hot potato of British politics. So, James, what are we actually looking at this week? So, before I introduce uh, the topic this week, I'd like to stress that anyone who is unhappy with anything they hear in the uh, following episode should get in touch with at Jollyon Rubs, uh, who is our complaints director, because we are, of course, talking about whether or not the establishment is trying to suppress a legitimate vote for Scottish independence. Let's jump right in. How are you doing, though? Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure. It's so nice to see you guys. I was just saying, it's just been great. It's, it's really, I just miss people so much, <laughs> so much. Although, James, I have, I have to say, of both of you, I enjoy all your stuff on Twitter so much. Your cat gives me a lot of joy. I don't even like cats, James. No, his bloody cat. <laughs> don't go on about his cat. His cat is so selfish. It interrupts records. <laughs> it walks in front of the cameras. There's usually also, you're, you're really missing out today because James doesn't have a domestic appliance on in the back. <laughs> <laughs> like a washing machine that regularly goes on and I'm like did, did you I mean because also it was quite funny in the first series like I would always get cast in the comments about my the terrible sound so I then made a really big deal of doing like really good sound <laughs> so listen let's get on to this so when you're at uni or you know when you're listening to wild rave music and you know allegedly having just a wonderful time on you know fantastic herbal remedies um, did you get into was anyone in your group into conspiracy theories like did you have one that you know you were like did, did anyone sort of get into them and you're like oh what that's my that's my entry level conspiracy theory um probably not so much at school but like give my parents given that they were sort of like um indian immigrants loved a bit of a kind of exaggeration about everything so their Love all it. their friends had a bit lots of slightly mad conspiracy theories about what was happening in india and things like that and of course this was like pre-technology of, of any kind so we That's would great. hear some sort of weird things going on but then, yeah loads of weird Love stuff it. from the community and the aunties and if my dad went to the mosque he'd come back full of like crazy kind of crazy talk so I think me and my brother had quite a high threshold for like bullshit which is why I went into labour politics obviously <laughs> no no one's threshold's that high surely what about 9-11 did 9-11 get you get you get you thinking or were people in your group you know because I'm always interested when a guest comes on to establish like when they started hearing about conspiracies you know when you're sort of reasonably rational mate down the pub starts telling you about the YouTube video they've seen oh oh yeah yeah I remember this is a really good this is this is probably my proper entry level into this stuff. So 
I did have a really good group of friends. I'm still really good friends with them from my clubbing days, dot, dot, dot. And, and And everyone's get, everyone gets on really, really well and blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly one guy in the group just starts with these crazy conspiracy theories. Starts going off in the group chat. Yeah, and starts posting stuff about how you do know that 9-11 was like not real and it was all like a massive hoax. And it was, first of all, it was a hoax and it wasn't real. Then it was like, who did it? It was just like, and, and I, I was looking at this guy and I was like, you seem like a normal human being on the outside. Like, where is all this coming from? And then he was like, oh, you just can't handle the truth. Like people like you, you just can't handle it. You're so programmed into the mainstream media. Like you've just, you've not got the bravery like you've got the courage. I've got the, you haven't got the Just mental like courage. Sheeple. Just more sheeple. <laughs> yes. Sheep yeah. emojis. Yeah. So, Jamesy, obviously, we know we're going to be talking about Scottish independence, but what is the actual deal for people who may not know what's going on at the moment about this? Why has it become such a huge fulcrum around political interest? So, I mean, what's quite interesting is there is a Scottish independence movement. It's a huge debate to the future of the country. That's kind of there. That's not a conspiracy. That's real. You know, people will tell you, hi, yes, I'm trying to get Scottish independence. So that would be a rubbish conspiracy theory. But what's sort of interesting is you've got a lot of sort of Scottish nationalists make a big point of, we want to do a better politics, a more participatory one. We've got proportional representation, so it's about dialogue. Our parliament's even laid out differently. It's not the old confrontational politics. And then oh my God, does everything not turn into what I believe we should sensitively refer to as astuci. Um, And so, you know, we have had a Scottish independence referendum. And while there were sort of debates around all of the central bits of it, there were also an epic number of really, really quite elaborate conspiracy theories, uh, which sort of include this brilliant one, my absolute favourite, that uh, David Cameron took a trip up to Shetland uh, to cover up the existence of a huge new secret oil field. Uh, Just himself? He stood in front of it? How how big was it? I mean, he did put on some weight around then. So, he did. You know, was his mate uh, Lex there? Was his, his mate Lex from Greensill there? So, Greensill. Um, but yes, so you've got the, the big secret oil field. You've got that the British government has faked the UK's national accounts for about 30 years to make it look like Scotland gets money from England. But in fact, because there's always a bit of a mumble there, Scotland <laughs> actually sends it to England because long reasons. Um one of which included that all of the historical oil revenue should be given back to Scotland, even though actually it's mostly assigned to Scotland anyway. Um, but none of the decommissioning costs should. That was are a you, fun little bit of it. Are you sort of are you are you shitting on Sean Connery's grave right now? I mean, <laughs> Sean Connery would not be happy about what you're saying right now about about Scottish oil. Let me just tell give you, that. you a, a playful cuff at this point. You had uh, SNP support actually taking photos of ballot boxes being moved between stations and saying this was evidence of fakery, which we then went on to see in much greater numbers in 2020, where there'd be a photo taken through a window in Georgia of some ballot boxes and people go, proof of ballot rigging. And it's like, no, it's some ballot boxes. Like, you know, well done. You've got a picture of some ballot boxes that, that, you know, you can't really have an election without them. Um, And, you know, it's it's all going to be like that, but even more intense for this next one. Uh, so there's every accusation from all the numbers are fixed, 
all the media is rigged against us. Uh, the the secret oil fields to hide the fact that Scotland would be the Saudi Arabia of the North Sea. Um, and we've sort of gone seven years from it, and it's definitely going to be even worse this time, isn't it, Aisha? I mean, assuming we get a, a referendum, which we might not. Um, yeah, well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I think my other favourite one around that was around the um, vote rigging. There was this accusation that John McTernan, who was chief of staff to Jim Murphy, who was the sort of Scottish secretary at the time, that he had sort of done some deal, not just with Ruth Davidson over all this, um, you know, vote rigging, but like MI5 had got involved. And then YouGov did a poll. I mean, Jim Sillers, who's like a prominent SNP uh, person, was like, yeah, MFI, not M- MFI are involved. MFI are involved. They did a lovely MFI job on the are involved. That is bloody nice. I bet they've had a good time. I mean, everyone's involved in this conspiracy. They're like, MI5's involved. And it's this whole thing just got so much traction. Like people, this thing just went on, a bit like the oil fields. The story just went on and on and on. And then YouGov polled um, the Scottish public and 26% of the population told YouGov that they thought that MI5 had stopped independence. Wow. Oh my God. Well, the thing is, you, you've got to, you know, look, I'm just going to put on my tinfoil hat for a bit, okay? Because it's always fun to play a bit of devil's advocate here. Okay, so can any one of you, and I'm sure Jamesy will probably know this because he's a fat monster, tell me how much of Scotland is owned by hereditary peers from the House of Lords? <laughs> uh, if you go by land, it's uh, it's really, really quite remarkable. How much it's, is it? Uh, it's about 80%, isn't it? Something 80% of Scotland is owned <laughs> by hereditary peers. So why would the English possibly have any reason to give up what they've, their ill-begotten gains? You know, I mean, those, those, those peers are Scottish. Yeah, well, so, not all of them are Scottish. No, there is there is huge, huge landowning, but there is huge, huge, huge landowning in, in Scotland, isn't there, by the aristocracy? Because there's a certain type of Scot who you, who you could meet. For instance, I went to the first time I, I came in contact with it. A friend of mine was getting married. I went up to a place I'd never been to a stalking lodge before, but uh, near Artornish in the Inner Hebrides, and I started to understand that a huge amount of Scotland is is utilised just by the landed gentry. You know, it is bizarre. I mean, Scott, the Scots get a pretty, pretty, pretty raw deal. I mean, it's like, where should we put our nuclear weapons? I don't know, the Clyde? <laughs> put, put them up there. Somewhere. It's, uh, I mean, you know, oh no, all those high-paying, skilled engineering jobs that uh, give that town one of the highest GDPs in the country. Hey man, oh, I think a lot, of people, a lot of people would prefer the nukes were on the, you know, the Humber or, or the world. Or I the Thames, right outside like Parliament. Can you actually London imagine? To get nuked. If there London. is a nuclear war, London will get a missile at I mean, it. I could kind of imagine Pretty Patel just before the election saying, guys, I'm bringing a nuke to London. That's it. We've got to keep it safe, okay? <laughs> Let's just have a nuke yeah. instead of Big Ben, maybe. I mean, it's getting a bit yeah. off. Just put I the nuke there. Of- kind of riding on the nuke as it arrives in like you know da, 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 with a man in a flag and, a, and the nuke is in a flag what do you what do you think the works on big ben are right now it's always been oh, a nuclear oh that's what it is isn't it it's like one of those you know it's like one of those new hbo shows that's Wake what's up, going people. on 
I oh, haven't thought absolutely. about it. So, I mean, listen, there obviously as well in the midst of this, you know, total madness around the, 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 the SMP has been these unbelievable battles like between Alex Salmond and Nicholas Sturgeon, which, you know, it's, it's just so mad, isn't it? Because it's sort of the same as the Labour movement. It's like, let's just totally destroy each other in public. But also in the, at the weirdest time, because... You know, Nicola Sturgeon has been doing really, really well. Now, I know there'll be plenty of unionists listening to this shouting now going, no, but what about, you know, education, health and all that stuff? But she's still really popular and her performance during the pandemic, her personal ratings are really, really, really high. She's on course to go into this, um, you know, a set of elections and possibly get a majority, an SNP majority. And suddenly, da-da-da! Alex Salmon like blunders in with his new Alaba party. And it's like, I had John Curtis on um, my radio show the other day. And he, what was so fascinating is he was like, this could mess things up so much. Yeah. Because if they, if she, if she can't get a majority by herself and she gets a majority with Alex Salmon, who she said is not fit for public office, what do you think Boris Johnson's going to do? He's going to be like, can't give you your... If you know what, I would have given you it if you had got your own majority. Sorry, my hands are tied. You yourself said he's not fit for office. I mean, it's... It is actually terrible for her. It is. It is. And, and for the whole Scottish independence movement. I mean, when you split any political movement, that's, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's also quite difficult if you're trying to say that PR brings better, fairer, more decent politics uh, to give people such a visible example of how it can hand people who have become quite fringe figures are often you know, problematic or discredited or questionable figures, it can hand them a huge, huge degree of power because if you've got two or three seats in a sort of first-past-the-post system, you're generally pretty irrelevant. DUP. In a PR system, you're much, much <laughs> Sorry, more likely... DUP. DUP. <laughs> much, much more likely to have... Uh, I mean, that worked out well for the DUP, didn't it? Um, Almost as well as it did for Nick Clegg. I mean, not, I can't imagine Eileen Foster suddenly turning up at Google, being like, Hi, I'm the new face of Google in Northern Ireland. <laughs> Essentially, the system builds in a much higher chance of those DUP scenarios. And with Alex Salmon, who, you know, I'm sure is about as, you know, as welcome as, uh, yeah, I can't I, I can't think of a non-rude way to finish that analogy. So as welcome as Alex Salmon in Scottish politics. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I, I do sort of feel like if I was Scottish, if I'd, you know, I, I would, I would definitely feel the democratic deficit of countless times that Scotland has not voted for the, you know, majority um, uh, party to the point where there are no seats held by, for instance, the Conservatives at times when it's just been, you know, uh, it doesn't represent the country. And I, pers- I mean, I would feel 
lessened as someone who's English, grew up, you know, in London. But I completely can understand why you would want to feel represented. And I think, you know, Brexit, there's no possible way of arguing with this chat of it was a once in a generation vote that after such seismic um, change in our political consensus and the reality of, of Britain, where, as we've just said on the day of recording, it's been announced we're not institutionally racist. It's been announced that there's no problem at this era, Everdeen vigil. It's, you know, it's been, I, I sort of feel we're living in a world where with this 80 plus majority, black is white, because we say it is. It's, it's just that simple and, and there isn't huge resistance. Do you think, Aisha, that there really is a chance that this could be, this could become a mass movement, even though this seismic thing has happened like with, with, with Salmon and, and Sturgeon? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. And I'm quite unpopular amongst a lot of my Labour brethren up in Scotland who are very, very anti-second Mm. referendum and very anti-independence. Now, I, in my heart of hearts, am still probably a, a unionist because for the same reason I wanted us to stay within the EU, I would want us to stay within the UK. I think sure. all the arguments about why it's a bad idea to leave the EU are absolute, absolutely apply to Scotland, if not more, particularly when you look at that border at Berwick and all that kind of stuff. But I am really, and this is what gets me into trouble, but I do believe it. I'm really sympathetic to why people do feel this desire to want to break away. I really understand the emotions that people feel and all the stuff you've just talked about. It's values, isn't it? Like Scotland mm. does feel like from a values point of view, very, very different to where England is. So England feels like it's got its own English, England and English nationalism issue, quite an ugly one, which what? is rearing its head. What do you mean? You don't <laughs> racist. I don't know why everyone keeps saying this. Sorry. Nigel sorry, Farage, I for instance, he's just a good bloke who just decides to put, like, you know, different refugees on posters and crop out the women and stuff like that just because, you know, he's a nice guy. He's got nothing to do with race. Why does everyone keep going I'm on about so it? I'm sorry. Don't you can't say me. anything anymore, can don't you? Don't report me to Lawrence Fox, please. Like, just <laughs> don't, don't. I'll get into a Is massive row. tell Lawrence Fox that... You cannot, as London mayor, call off national lockdowns. It's a very simple point, and it seems rather central to everything he's saying. So I don't know if anyone wants to pass it on. But also the idea that he's Lawrence Fox would have had a better chance running in the Hartlepool by-election than lo running in London, the most <laughs> multicultural, like pluralistic city, you know, on these shores. I That's mean, honestly, of our Fox chat. Let's not give him any more airtime. I do. I really do understand the frustration that people feel, and I know a lot of friends who were staunch unionists back in 2014. They are now much more open-minded to independence. Right. It's that double whammy of Boris and. Brexit. And because Brexit has happened, there's a lot of people who think, what's the worst that can happen? You, you know, you, you said that the worst thing that could ever happen was Brexit and it's happened and everything's okay. So we, we, we might be okay. This is sort of the, the interesting thing for me on this in that, again, culturally and sort of out of it, I can get quite a, a lot of sympathy. You know, as a left-wing English person who really likes Scotland, I sort of want to keep the union and not just for the selfish political reasons of it helps the composition of UK parliaments. And, you know. and all the secret oil. Oh, and all the secret oil as well. And the nukes and the, news and the stalking. It's, um, but there was, there's sort of this thing of, it is, like to leave, I can totally understand why people would want to, but 
everything that you look at, even like you don't have to be an economist, tells you it would be even more difficult than Brexit. It would be more painful. It would come at a big cost. And the weird thing for me is, I feel like if you wanted to show you a grown-up political movement, sensible, had learned the lessons from Brexit, didn't want to divide your country if you won, I feel like Scottish nationalists could come out and win an argument on the basis of, this is really difficult, but it's worth it. Mm. And instead, they've just totally swapped sides on the Brexit divide. And sort of people who are going, how dare, you know, Brexit supporters push misinformation about the EU? How dare they do this? How dare they destroy trust in our politics? You know, how dare they sort of ally with these weird causes? They instead sort of just switched sheep. Nope, UK government's faking it. They weren't faking it on Brexit. That, those were true, but they're faking it on this one. They're faking it on. It's like swapping sides on a football pitch, and they're suddenly making all the arguments the Brexiteers made when, as I say, I think they have a good case. Yeah. And yet they do this yeah. shitty, jokey, misinformation-y crap, and it just makes me think. But why? But why? Because you wrote, you wrote an article about this recently as well, and I think it's, it's, a core, it's a core point about the problem. One, it's about the media. Two, it's about conspiracy theories. Three, it's about the actual way that politicians communicate with the masses. We're now living in a culture dominated by how many clicks and views you get rather than the content of the content. Right, it's 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 almost irrelevant now. It's such a attention economy that salaciousness and that narrative around the what is the most highly tagged trending idea becomes the narrative. So what they're doing by playing back into that is playing into the commercial imperative of how stuff goes viral and stuff. And the shit, the shitty thing is, and this is something I think that's a real, that it's also the, the problem with conspiracy theories is how do you put the genie back in the box? How do you monetize rational content? How do you get people talking again? I mean, just to jump in there, I think that's absolutely right. Man, I think there is a, there is a kind of circular argument here because I think a lot of this stuff started all the irony with the 2014 Scottish referendum. You're You're so right. That is when the genie starts coming out the bottle. That's the first time we've had a big referendum on a big divisive issue in this country. It's the first time social media kind of collides with that. The, you know, that's when the BBC, Nick Robinson starts getting chased down the street and the BBC starts getting like attacked as being this. They had an effigy of him, didn't they? It was was completely bizarre. (laughs) And then here we are, you know, full circle. Again, it's and really I think- interesting you, you, you say that, Aisha. I remember for me, I was filming this documentary and I spent a day in Glasgow and a day in um, Edinburgh. And we, we, we were leaving from Glasgow. And in, is it George Square? The Central Square is George uh-huh. Square, right? Yeah. And um, I was really shocked. Like, it started off, everyone was in very good moods on both sides. And then by the afternoon, like, people were really going at each other. And I was, I don't think I really anticipated you know, how much polarization Brexit would cause because it was still, the genie was still quite in the bottle then. I don't think they'd even really, we didn't really know there was going to be a, a referendum on Europe. But you're, you're totally right. And it is that, isn't it? It's, it's keying into that, you know, lonely people finding a story for themselves, needing to make sense of things, wanting to make a better life, you know, positive things that come out of it. But I mean, how do we deal with all the fractures that it's created? I, I know journalists who were genuinely quite traumatized from covering that referendum because 
unless he'd actually covered the darker bits of internet culture, like, you know, Anonymous or 4chan or anything, you just hadn't been exposed to that barrage of anger and abuse. That It didn't just come from one side of that referendum debate. You know, I think the Cybernats got the worst rep, but not entirely fairly. Yeah. And there were, you know, reporters were getting, threats were getting, attacks were getting, thousands of complaints for everything. But it did actually, you know, exactly as Aisha says, it sparked all sorts of things. It was the first iteration of one of my absolute favorite mini conspiracy theories as well. And it was the first time that used pens really, became a thing and use pens is just the most adorable conspiracy theory because if you're faking an election you do it by ballot box it's very very rare that someone would literally get your ballot rub it out and refill in another one that just replace your ballot um so the idea that there's this big nefarious conspiracy but it can be defeated just with you and a biro is sort of at the heart of conspiracy theories to me it's it's sort of simultaneously nefarious but empowering i love that it's got strong highlander vibes to it as well and like in brief part like just one man and his biro that is what is gonna get freedom that's so true one biro It's so mad, though, because, I mean, like, again, on the day of recording, this this, uh, this fantastic report has come out um, suggesting that the UK is not, in fact, institutionally racist. And I, I was having a bit of a, a fight with the old, uh, you know, cartoon, avi, couple of hundred followers, troll account that had been created in the last six months. And then a couple of other people jumped in. The, the interesting thing is, and it comes to this question of national identity, is often... What I find interesting is when I say something on Twitter like British institutions are institutionally racist, people come back going, I'm not racist. And I'm like, well, no, because I'm saying the British institution are racist. Well, I, I'm not racist. And you're like, hang, hang on, is there some cognitive dissonance here? I am describing an institution and you have personalized that institution. So you are that thing. And when did that happen? Because I don't think when I was growing up and, you know, in the 90s, in, in the early noughties, you know, I didn't feel like people thought they were the flack. Why is it so much more prevalent now? I think it's. I think a lot of this, again, does spark back to this rise in, um, you know, identity politics across the the piece now and the the right slam identity politics as well it's one of your characteristics and you will just become obsessed with it but the left can equally point at the right and say well you have become your identity you've become so sensitive you've taken on an entire state as as your your individual being but remember this has been subtly pushed and manipulated and exploited by political leaders again in my mind a lot of this goes back to that scottish referendum in 2014 because and I don't say this as a criticism to the SNP I actually think what they've done is very interesting they have created a real civic pride in being Scottish right there is mm. I feel it when I go home like I feel really proud of being Scottish in a way that a lot of my English counterparts do not feel proud about being English yeah, yeah. so and 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 the SNP did a really smart thing with a melded independence. They melded a political project with a cultural project. So people felt really proud about being Scottish, right? Really proud. And then David Cameron. So, so you have Scottish nationalism on the rise, 2014. This is my conspiracy theory. Nigel Farage is looking at all of this and thinking, oh, hang on a minute, as is David Cameron. 
And David Cameron makes, I think, a really fatal mistake the morning after that 2014 Scottish referendum. So he stands on the steps of Downing Street and the union has won. And what he should have said is... I'm going to be a prime minister that governs for the whole country. Mm. I understand that tensions are raw to, to the people who lost in Scotland. I'm going to make you feel like you have power and opportunity yeah. and decision making. What did he do? He stood on the steps of Downing Street and said, I'm bringing in English votes for English laws, which was That's an absolute amazing. shot in the arm totally. for English nationalism. And then I think that snowballs into what we then know happened. It, did, it did change Scotland decides into England v Scotland and yeah. England won. Um, but what was so strange was Cameron clearly in some ways was trying to do a similar inclusive nationalism for all that. I do think that's a tautology and nationalism falls apart on itself. That's why I'm not a nationalist. But he was trying to do the, hey, I like the union flag. I like rule Britannia, but I also like, you know, a multi-ethnic society, gay marriage, <laughs> and you know, environment. That was what that was the kind of PM he wanted to be. He never managed to be it, but that was what he was trying to do. But it's what actually the SNP succeeded in. And it is the odd thing because it's left the left wing of England, particularly, in an absolute nightmare because everyone knows that they should try and be patriotic. And the problem is, in the same way that I would be, Ed Miliband and Keir Starmer, you can tell, kind of know and want to be able to go, I like Britain, but the good bits of Britain are kind of inclusive, patriotic. And you can tell just patriotism makes them cringe inside. And they don't like doing it. That's why they pay loads of money for media reports to tell them to wrap themselves in flags and veterans. But it's why it sounds so naff. I mean, not least as well, Starmer's got the extra problem of all he's got to do is say, I don't hate Britain. And several of his yes. own backbenchers and 10,000 people online will go, oh, so you endorse uh, the empire, do you? Slavery was good, was it, Keith? You know, <laughs> you? the most right-wing Labour leader we've ever had. Can't believe the party's actually fascist now. You and sicko. Literally, Keir Starmer could stroke a kitten and there would be, you know, 10,000 angry things on why this was actually symbolises him wanting to form the Third Reich. But, <laughs> but it is this thing of British Britain's left can't talk about patriotism without cringing and feeling like, oh crap, are we dog whistling here? Sorry, England's left. Scotland doesn't, Scotland has defeated that bit. Yeah. It, it does, it does feel a lot less awkward and a lot less But the problem with that is, is that the, the reason they've done that is because that wing of Scottish politics really does love Scotland. Like, it really does love everything about Scotland, like from Celtic connections and fiddle music to, like, they, it just loves... To, to so the, for to, university to, places. It, just, it loves... But the problem for the left in England is I don't know if it does love England. It loves London and it loves... Leeds and it loves Manchester. I don't know if it loves the whole of England. We wanted it loves to do Newcastle uh, as well. Newcastle's lovely. We wanted to do a sketch when we were when we did when we did our our Brexit again show just after the referendum. We did we tried to do Scotland, which was we would like Scotland and London to leave together. <laughs> yeah. that's, I mean that's that's the master plan. You know, a bridge, a big bridge. Right. Now we've come to that part of the podcast where we need to decide if our conspiracy theories are for real or they are, in fact, a forgazy. 
So look, this is an, obviously an odd one. It's not like the moon landings we're talking about here. But there are so many conspiracies. Yeah, they were obviously staged. Yeah, exactly. Are you telling me the Scottish referendum was staged? My <laughs> God. Another bombshell exclusive for the podcast. No, but Aisha, I mean, it's such a complicated issue, this one. I don't think there's a simple, it's, it's you know, it's a conspiracy or it's not. But maybe the, the more pertinent is why are there so many conspiracies right now about what's going on in the Scottish independence? I think there's, 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 there's lots of conspiracies because I suppose it goes back to the, the what I was talking about earlier. I think a, a lot of people are so deeply frustrated with the situation. They they want change and they're, they're looking for sort of um, excuses as to why they haven't got change. And of course, let's be honest, we're going into this incredibly heated political moment where the fight is, I mean, this these elections in Holyrood are going to be the de facto sort of second referendum on independence. So there is a war on information. There is a war for the narrative right now. And there's so much we don't know about if we get independence, how will it look like? What will the currency be like? What will happen to oil? What will happen to pensions? What will happen to the deficit, et cetera, et cetera. But so at the moment, both sides are, it's just, they're both furiously peddling out as much information slash misinformation because they're trying to win. They're not trying to win the war on evidence. They're trying to win the war on emotion. Mm. Jamesy. So... I think the the bizarre thing here is that there is an absolute valid argument from independent supporters that the establishment was out to get them. Even the palace intervened. The Queen got involved in politics like during the 2014 referendum. So were people trying to tip the scales on them? Absolutely, yes. But sort of what happened, as does in these situations, is two and two got put together to make 200 secret oil fields off the coast of Scotland. Um, and so, you know, they they actually took what, what was quite a valid case of stacking the deck and I think did turn it into conspiracy theories that, you know, as as Aisha said, that, that first independence referendum was really roiled through and kind of, you know, it, it was bigger than the spark, but it was the spark that sort of ignited the the now seven-year-long culture war in the, across the UK. Yeah. Oh, can I just tell you my other favourite conspiracy theory we didn't touch on? Yeah. This is post-2014. Uh, this is actually just in the last uh, year or so. So um, a really good piece of legislation went through the Scottish Parliament and that was to end period poverty and it was to give free sanitary products to people who needed them. Brilliant brilliant yeah, piece of legislation yeah. cross party started by monica lennon and the labor party adopted by the smp but there was a conspiracy theory going round from people who are at the really other fringe end of the smp that really don't like the english and their argument was if you gave free tampons in in scotland all these people from england would come to raid the tampon. <laughs> <laughs> it was wow. like like womb raider like tampon raider like that, what, is amazing. That, that was amazing, that was amazing. why didn't we talk about this earlier this is like <laughs> incredible John, are you going to move to scotland and uh, stock up on sanitary products mate then? listen i'm going to be uh, uh stalking stalking with some aristo people i met uh living off the free education 
education that I'm able to give all my uh, children. So I'll be living off better benefits up there in Scotland. I'll be, I'll be, you know, uh, you know, swimming in in the Klein. I'll be, I'll be sort of, I'll be in, I'll be in the Mull. I'll be in Mull drinking a, a, a single Mull. It's going to be amazing. I mean, look. So, episode sponsored by Visit Scotland. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, you, it, when you can. Before you let in, when they finished dealing with the English hordes of women who flooded up there for, 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 you know, that, just that, that free Tampax, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to argue that. Aisha, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Um, for people who maybe, uh, for the very few, I'm sure, who, who aren't following you already, where can people find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Aisha Hazarika. Please don't troll me. Uh, you can find me on Times Radio um, at the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, four till seven. Amazing. And uh, how's Ed doing? Is he doing okay? Yeah, he's doing good. He's still WhatsApping and stuff. Yeah, had a long yeah. chat with him the other day. Yeah, he's good, yeah. he's Just all right. Yeah, he's good. He's hanging it's out because he keeps not responding to my texts, and I wonder if that's because of you. I don't know. <laughs> no, not really. Ed. I haven't texted you in ages, mate. Come on. Um, no, I'd love Ed to come on the show. Just you know, put in a good word. I will uh, pass so, on. Listen, thank you so much for joining us. As always, you know, this has been the new conspiracist. You can find um, James Wall at Mister. At James RB UK. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> at James RB UK. And you can find me at Jolly and Rubes, J O L Y O N R U B S. Um, thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week. 